J.C. Ryle's Devotional Thoughts on the Gospel of Luke Section 128 Who is the Greatest? Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30 And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But you shall not be so. But he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who is chief as he who does serve. For whether is greater, he who sits at meat, or he who serves, is not he who sits at meat? But I am among you as he who serves. You are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father has appointed unto me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Let us observe in this passage how firmly pride and love of preeminence can stick to the hearts of Christian men. We are told that there was a dispute among the disciples as to which of them should be considered the greatest. The strife was one which had been rebuked by our Lord on a former occasion. The ordinance which the disciples had just been receiving and the circumstances under which they were assembled made the strife peculiarly inappropriate. And yet, at this very season, the last quiet time they could spend with their master before his death, the little flock begins a dispute as to who should be the greatest. Such is the heart of man, ever weak, ever deceitful, ever ready even at its best times to turn aside to what is evil. The sin before us is a very old one, ambition, self-esteem and self-conceit lie deep at the bottom of all men's hearts, and often in the hearts where they are least suspected. Thousands imagine that they are humble, who cannot bear to see an equal more honoured and favoured than themselves. Few indeed can be found who rejoice heartily in a neighbour's promotion over their own heads. The quantity of envy and jealousy in the world is a glaring proof of the prevalence of pride. Men would not envy a brother's advancement if they had not a secret thought that their own merit was greater than his. Let us live on guard against this sore disease if we may make any profession of serving Christ. The harm that it has done the Church of Christ is far beyond calculation. Let us learn to take pleasure in the prosperity of others and to be content with the lowest place for ourselves. The rule given to the Philippians should be often before our eyes. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. The example of John the Baptist is a bright instance of the Spirit at which we should aim. He said of our Lord, He must increase, but I must decrease. Philippians 2.3 and John 3.30
that is observed secondly in this passage, the striking account which our Lord gives of true Christian greatness. He tells his disciples that the worldly standard of greatness was the exercise of lordship and authority, but you, he says, shall not be so. He that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that serves. And then he enforces this principle by the mighty fact of his own example. I am among you as he that serves. Usefulness in the world and church, a humble readiness to do anything and put our hands to any good work, a cheerful willingness to fill any post, however lowly, and discharge any office, however unpleasant, if we can only promote happiness and holiness on earth, these are the true tests of Christian greatness. The hero in Christ's army is not the man who has rank and title and dignity and chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. It is the man who looks not on his own things, but the things of others. It is the man who is kind to all, tender to all, thoughtful for all, with a hand to help all and a heart to feel for all. It is the man who spends and is spent to make the vice and misery of the world less, to bind up the broken-hearted, to befriend the friendless, to cheer the sorrowful, to enlighten the ignorant, and to raise the poor. This is the truly great man in the eyes of God. The world may ridicule his labors and deny the sincerity of his motives, but while the world is sneering, God is pleased. This is the man who is walking most closely in the steps of Christ. Let us follow after greatness of this sort if we desire to prove ourselves Christ's servants. Let us not be content with clear head knowledge and loud lip profession and keen insight into controversy and fervent zeal for the interests of our own party. Let us see that we minister to the needs of a sin-burdened world and do good to bodies and souls. Blessed be God! The greatness which Christ commended is within the reach of all. All have not learning or gifts or money, but all can minister to the happiness of those around them by passive or by active graces. All can be useful and all can be kind. There is a grand reality in constant kindness. It makes the men of the world think. Let us observe thirdly in this passage our Lord's gracious commendation to his disciples. He said to them, You have remained true to me in my time of trial. There's something very striking in these words of praise. We know the weakness and infirmity of our Lord's disciples during the whole period of his earthly ministry. We find him frequently reproving their ignorance and lack of faith. He knew full well that within a few hours... They were all going to forsake him. But here 
we find him graciously dwelling on one good point in their conduct and holding it up to the perpetual notice of his church. They had been faithful to their master, notwithstanding all their faults. Their hearts had been right, whatever had been their mistakes. They had clung to him in the day of his humiliation, when the great and noble were against him. They had remained true to him in his time of trial. Let us rest our souls on the comfortable thought that the mind of Christ is always the same. If we are true believers, let us know that he looks at our graces more than at our faults, that he pities our infirmities, and that he will not deal with us according to our sins. Never had a master such poor, weak servants as believers are to Christ, but never had servants such a compassionate and tender master as Christ is to believers. Surely we cannot love him too well. We may come short in many things. We may fail in knowledge and courage and faith and patience. We may stumble many times. But one thing let us always do. Let us love the Lord Jesus with heart and soul and mind and strength. Whatever others do, let us remain true to him and cleave to him with purpose of heart. Happy is he who can say with Peter, however humbled and ashamed, Lord, you know that I love you. John twenty one fifteen. Let us observe lastly what a glorious promise our Lord holds out to his faithful disciples. He says, I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father has appointed unto me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. These words were our Lord's parting legacy to his little flock. He knew that in a few hours his ministry among them would be ended. He winds it up by a wonderful declaration of good things laid up in store for them. We may not perhaps see the full meaning of every part of the promise. Enough for us to know that our Lord promised his eleven faithful ones glory, honor, and rewards far exceeding anything they had done for him. They had gone a little way with him, like Barzillai with David, and done a little for him. He assures them that they shall have in another world a recompense worthy of a king. Let us leave the whole passage with the cheering thought that the wages which Christ will give to his believing people will be far out of proportion to anything they have done for him. Their tears will be found in his bottle. Their least desires to do good will be found recorded. Their weakest efforts to glorify him will be found written in his book of remembrance. Not a cup of cold water shall miss its reward. <laughs>